Christina found this magical world where doctors are happy and patients are pleasant and no one is screaming or stealing surgeries. Everyone just rubs each other all day long. Do you know how much easier our life would be if we could just swap lotion, 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 lotion? Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 99, wear sunscreen. I believe in taking care of myself. I use a deep pore cleanser lotion, then a honey almond body scrub, then I apply an herb mint facial mask. I always use an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. I have a, um, a horn <laughs> growing out of my head. Okay. I came to a point where I couldn't squeeze it anymore, and that's called a pyloris. My skincare routine. My morning skincare routine. Skincare routine. What's the largest organ in your body? If you guess skin, you'd be correct. Open up any magazine, Instagram influencer account, or morning talk show. You'll see an ad for the top 10 products you must use for beautiful, glowy skin. Or walk down the aisle at Shoppers or at Sephora, and you're greeted with a million types of creams, oils, serums, shampoos, and cleansers. We're constantly inundated with advertising on the most essential products, or the best skincare routines, with very little across-the-board consensus. It's hard to know whom to trust and what actually works. This is understandable, because at the end of the day, beauty is a business, and one that is valued at just over half a trillion US dollars globally. I'm Erin. I'm Alex. And I'm Richie. Welcome to episode 56 of Raw Talk. On today's episode, we went out of the laboratory and into the lavatory to find out more about our largest and most visible organ. We delved into the field of dermatology, which is uniquely situated at the intersection of medicine, cosmetics, and surgery. We went searching for the most evidence-based information so you don't have to. The first thing we tackled is our society's skincare slash bathing practices. This is something that is ingrained in our culture. But where did these routines come from? Are they actually beneficial from a medical or beauty perspective? Everything you read in the magazines, everything you're told, pediatricians and, and, and uh, family doctors and physicians know that we don't need to clean as much. So we tell that to patients, but it, we're going against a huge marketing that says, get the body washes, you know, put on the lavender, do the bath bombs, mango shampoo. Like they're all chemicals and the skin has to deal with them and it's not necessary, especially in children. And as far as how do you deal with it in the drugstore, <laughs> read my book. <laughs> <laughs> That was Dr. Sandy Scottnicki, a dermatologist specializing in allergic contact dermatitis, or skin allergies, and has been practicing for the last 22 years. She's the founder of the Bay Dermatology Center, an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and she teaches at St. Michael's Hospital. And as you may have just guessed, she recently published a book called Beyond Soap. She was propelled to write this popular science book because of the skyrocketing prevalence of unexplained skin reactions we're seeing nowadays. And there's a lot of misinformation about skin health in the general public. It's a fascinating read and incredibly practical, and we highly encourage you to get your hands on it. She helps us turn a more critical eye toward what we as a society seem to know about skin, skincare, beauty products, anti-aging, and even our hygienic practices, which we've certainly never questioned ourselves before. One particular quote in the book that struck us was, the washing practices that keep us healthy and hygienic are a lot less rigorous than the washing processes we've been socialized into thinking keep us clean. I interviewed quite a few 
physicians and basic science researchers, in particular, Dr. Sally Bloomfield in London. She is a professor emeritus of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And she was very generous with her time. And a lot of that comes from her. Uh, And that was an aha moment for me, too. I mean, hygiene is basically what we need to do to decrease the transmission of disease. And in this day and age, in northern North America anyway, or westernized countries, it's washing your hands. The washing of your hair and your body and all that is being clean. And we've sort of mixed them up. And people think that washing their body every day with a detergent or soap is actually good for you. And it's not. (laughs) And I think if you talk to Europeans, a lot of Europeans know that. It's interesting because I don't think they've been bombarded as much with the advertising as we have. It's very true. We, We over wash ourselves, over clean ourselves. And it's not about hygiene. This blurred line between hygiene and cleanliness is an interesting one and definitely got us thinking. When and where did we learn to adopt our current washing and bathing practices? And are they truly for the purposes of hygiene? Dr. Sally Bloomfield, as Dr. Scott Nicky just mentioned, has coined the societal phenomenon as the cleanliness obsession. At some point, we've moved away from hygienic customs to protect ourselves from infectious diseases into an over-obsession with cleanliness. In other words, a complete absence of dirt and feeling fresh and smelling nice. And these are really more about societal desires rather than for health purposes. So why is overwashing or overcleaning our skin and hair not good for us from a biological perspective? What is really happening to our skin when we put on cleansers, oils, serums, creams, eye creams, etc.? Well, one of the most important analogies I think I use in the book right off the bat is the sort of brick wall analogy. It's much more complex than that, but it, obviously this is for the public. And I think even for me, it was a bit of a aha. Like, So we have this incredible permeable membrane, our skin, which has basically evolved with us over 200,000 years, right? And it is our gateway. And so if you think of it like a brick wall, the cells are sort of the bricks of the outer skin, and then the mortar is your natural oils or lipids. And the act of washing, just water itself, decreases the mortar. And then when you add in soap and cleansers, and soap being much worse because it's alkaline, and there's a pH thing that we haven't talked about yet, but essentially washing with soap, cleanser, and water decreases that mortar. So you get a leaky wall. It's kind of like the leaky gut analogy. And what happens is you can let in chemicals easier, allergens, irritants, now pollution. You know, people who scrub their face thinking they're doing a good thing and then they go go out and it's the, the pollution can go through the leaky brick wall. So modern day skincare does that to the brick wall. It damages it. I was watching a series on the TV about sort of 1960s and they all use cold cream. I mean, We've known, and the soap industry knows as well, because soap is very damaging. It's high alkaline, and it removes the mortar more. So that's why there's been this sort of, you know, transition to cleansers. But with everybody wanting to go more natural, they want to go back to natural soap. And it's not good, mostly because it's not pH balanced. And we haven't talked about the microbiome, but the microbiome, you know, is exploding. And I find it fascinating because my degree is microbiology and immunology. And the skin has acidic. It has a pH of around 5 to 6, 5.5. And but interestingly, internally, we're more neutral, right? We're more around 7.4. So the skin is acidic partly because we now know the pH maintains that brick wall. And the microbiome, which needs this acidity to grow, 
has something to do with that and we don't understand what it is because in diseased skin like eczema and psoriasis the microbiome is less diverse and different and we don't know why that is. If what Sandy's saying is sounding familiar, you may have already listened to episode 48 on autoimmune diseases. We explored concepts like the leaky gut and the microbiome in the context of diseases like Crohn's and type 1 diabetes. Definitely go back and check it out. We were interested to hear that the microbiome is just as important on our skin as it is in our gut. We asked Sandy to unpack the role of the microbiome in the health of our skin. Well, when you think about it, it it kind of grosses you out a little bit. But some interesting facts, we have more microbial genomic material, which is DNA, than human DNA. So right off the bat, that's like staggering, right? And you got to wonder, what is it, what's it been doing? Or what have we been doing to it? The microbiome is on the skin and in the gut. And there's more bacteria than human cells, fungus and viruses as well. The whole, it's not just bacteria. And no two people's microbiome is the same. The microbiome can help protect us and train our immune system. There's studies to show that in mice that are born into sterile environments, their immune system doesn't develop. So you need the microbiome on you to train your immune system. And the question is, is have we been altering it with our modern day skincare? And the microbiologists I interviewed for this book agree that we're probably doing something, but nobody really, it's so early. The research is in its infancy, but I think it's interesting, again, that wasn't the point of my book, but my research, I was like, wow, you know, microbiome and soap and cleaning and products. And because nobody puts the pH of their products on, on the label. And if we're alkalizing our skin, that's damaging the barrier and changing the microbiome. Now that we have a better understanding of what's happening to our skin on the micro level, let's zoom out and look at how our skin might affect our mental well-being. Let's be honest. We all care about our skin and are at least somewhat invested in it because it really is our most visible organ. It's how we present to the world. We wanted to learn more about the intrinsic connection between how we feel on the inside and how we look on the outside from a dermatologist's perspective. Just in my clinical practice, I think when people are more happy with themselves, they take better care of themselves. And if you take better care of yourself, all of those take somebody who thinks they're worthwhile to to take care of. And if you don't have the self-worth, then, you know, so that it all affects your aging because you're not going to age as well because you're not taking care of yourself. I find that the whole Botox thing with young people very frustrating because there is a body dysmorphia there and they're they're looking at these people on Instagram that have all been photoshopped. And so when I have 20-year-olds come in asking me for Botox, I I do sit down and have a a discussion with them. And, you know, I've changed my tune a little bit as I'm getting older. I used to be very staunch and like, you don't need this, and I, but they're going to go somewhere else and do it. So yeah, I try to gauge if there's any issues and I may, I may refer to, refer them, but I sometimes will give them like two units of Botox around the eyes just to make them feel like they're doing something. Because I know if I don't, they're going to go somewhere else and someone else might take advantage of them. I don't know if that's right or not, but that's what I've sort of, that's my conclusion. But yeah, there's this huge stress on young people to look a certain way and be a certain way and some of that comes from the companies like Botox is preventative you have to start it early you can start it in your 30s you don't need to start it in your 20s and nobody needs Botox the whole cosmetic aspect with dermatology bothers me sometimes I mean I do do it 
but I think I try to do, I have a full service practice. Like I'm not just cosmetic. I do, you know, all dermatology. I see kids, I see elderly, I see skin cancer. I offer it. I see a lot of moms, right? So they bring, bring their kids in, they'll have a mole check and they'll, they'll, can you give me a little Botox? I'm like, sure. There's, it's like hair dye. I kind of liken Botox nowadays to hair dye because in the fifties it was like, oh, like that's dangerous. That's a chemical. Why are you doing that? And so it's the unknown kind of thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing something that isn't harmful to you, that makes you feel good and doing it appropriately by a trained physician or injector. But I struggle with it a little bit. The idea of keeping an eye on patients who may be seeking extraneous cosmetic treatments isn't unique to Dr. Scott Nicky. Dr. Julia Carroll, another Toronto dermatologist, echoed her sentiments. Melissa caught up with Dr. Carroll over the phone. Over the years, I've referred the odd patient on to a psychologist for like very extreme cases, but I've actually ended up managing quite a lot of those patients on my own in the meantime because it's very hard just because of resources, it's hard for them to get into seeing psychologists. So I try to keep them sort of at least connected with me and under my wing because for people, and particularly there's a condition called body dysmorphic disorder where people are obsessed with, you know, a part of their skin or something they see in their body that's what they see is is in their mind is more dramatic than, than what everybody else sees for them. So it's in that sort of same category as like anorexia or bulimia where there's like the inside outside doesn't really inside view doesn't match what the rest of the world is seeing. And so some of those patients I'll try to sort of just keep under my wing because I don't want them to, you know, fall prey for somebody who's going to, you know, to sell them something or do something that's unreasonable just for, you know, financial advantage. So I try to coach them into seeing how they truly look and, and then try to get them some help there. But that that's pretty uncommon. I would say the majority of patients that come that are younger if they ask about cosmetic concerns, you know, sometimes we'll get, you know, we'll sort of get to the bottom. I always ask about their family, what, how their parents age, you know, whether they had acne when they were younger. So we go through all of those things. And if there's a legitimate concern, you know, I'm okay to treat it. But usually we'll look at some preventative measures and skincare, maybe some chemical peels, things that we can do that are going to make them feel that they're being preventative and helpful for their skin, but not really jumping into the you know, the more advanced um, cosmetic treatments. Both doctors Carol and Scott Nicky are members of the Canadian Dermatology Association, and Dr. Carol is actually the Ontario director on the CDA's board. When we started doing research for this episode, we were overwhelmed by the wealth of conflicting information out there on skin health, and we suspect that most of you listeners are as well. As you may have guessed, Dr. Scott Nicky advocates for a less-is-more approach to skincare, and you'll hear about hers and Dr. Carol's own routine must-haves in a little bit. But for those of us who aren't dermatologists, how can we wade through the information overload and figure out what's accurate? The Canadian Dermatology Association seem like a good place to start. So I am the Ontario Director on the board of the Canadian Dermatology Association, and so I basically bring the concerns of Ontario physicians and somewhat Ontario patients to the Canadian Dermatology Association board. And then I served on a number of committees as well. So I serve on the Critical Practice Guidelines Working Group. I actually chair that group. And then I'm also on the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee and the Education Committee. So within the CDA, there's lots of subcommittees and we do you know, a, lot of, a lot of projects. You know, really our goal is to advance the science and the art of medicine and surgery as it relates to skin, hair, and nails, because it's not just skin, it's skin, hair, and nails that really encompasses dermatology. So 
you know, we look at professional development for our members. We also support patient care. We provide a lot of public education, particularly when it comes to sun protection, but also other aspects of skin health. We want to really just promote a lifetime of healthy skin, hair, and nails for Canadians. Right. And so how do you go about achieving that goal other than having those resources available on your website, for example? So there's lots of different things that we do. Some of the fun things we do is we have Sun Awareness Week. So that's a, a week that's in June. And we really try to get the word out from from a CDA level, but also our members across Canada will, will put a push out. So sometimes it could just be something local that you do in your office with your patients to talk about sun protection and, and skin cancer. And a lot of us do media around that topic as well. There's World Melanoma Day that we participate in. So we go to Parliament Hill. And the focus there is really trying to change the behavior of Canadians regarding sun protection. Um, recently, myself and a number of women were involved in an outreach program where we actually went into um, shelters to educate women and children on skin care and give them economical options of things they can do to improve things like acne, eczema, melasma, things that might affect them outwardly, but would also you know, affect them inwardly when they're at a vulnerable time in their life and maybe they're out for, you know, a job search or just trying to get some things organized. So we gave them some tips there. We've made public service announcements, particularly on psoriasis or outdoor, sorry, indoor tanning. So there's a, there's a great series of videos called Tanning is Out and it just talks about the perils of indoor tanning or tanning in general. And then we have some interesting product recognition programs. So for us, it's important. There's a lot of products out there, and, and we're the experts in those products. So we wanted a way to communicate that to patients in a broader way. So there is a CDA symbol that is on products. There's a particular one for sunscreen, and sunscreens have to be broad spectrum, a minimum um, SPF of 30. They have to be minimally fragranced, low irritation, and then we don't want them containing the most common allergens that we see. And then there's a similar program just for skincare products outside of sunscreen. So that's just the tip of the iceberg of what we do. So the CDA is heavily involved in advocating for greater understanding of skin, hair, and nail health. But what defines the nitty-gritty of what goes under the umbrella of health? Dermatology exists at a unique intersection of medicine and cosmetics. When does something like acne, for example, stop being medical and start becoming cosmetic? I'm going back to acne specifically, I think that's a great example. But I think it's really important to just state off the top that acne is not just a cosmetic concern. It's a disease. Like it has chapters and textbooks. And so it really is a disease. Some of the sequelae might be more cosmetic. But I think that's the interesting thing is that, you know, you're right in that there is this gray zone and it's sort of where does one end and, and the other begin. And So when I'm talking to teenagers or young adults about, or their parents about acne and about trying to get them on, you know, certain treatments, sometimes they'll sort of say, oh, you know, maybe it doesn't bother me, or the parents are a little hesitant to do something that might be a little bit more aggressive. And then I'll sort of point out that you don't know the decisions that you or or your, your teenager are making because of the acne that they have. So, you know, if they have really bad acne on their back, like classic backne, we call it, or, you know, they have that big pimple on their cheek, like what decision are they making and how, what's that going to do further on their life? Are they quitting the swim team? Are they not trying out for ballet or are they opting out of social events with their friends? And you just don't know what the knock-on effect of that is. You know, you don't know that the person that quit the swim team 
might have gone on to get a scholarship to university and then that might have led to them going into you know medicine or law like you don't know so it's you want to give people in this vulnerable time in their life like all the support that they can and for me that what I can give is I can help them you know treat and control their acne so that that's one less thing that's going to impact their confidence like it or not most of us care about the way we look our skin is how we present to the world so maybe it's no surprise that people are hyper-analytical of their skin. Dr. Carroll explains it this way. If we were able to see our internal organs, like our liver for example, we might be more aware if some aspect of it changed and more likely to see a liver specialist. It's why dermatologists see a range of cases from medical to cosmetic. So I don't think gap is the best term because that seems to seem like there's a group on one side and a group on the other side. And I think it really is a spectrum because you know, the acne example, you know, the disease is acne and maybe the cosmetic issue is more acne scars. But really, you know, if someone has horrible acne scars, I still think that should be under medical. Uh, for a lot of a lot of times where the division goes is what is covered, for example, in Ontario under OHIP and what is not. It's not even a decision that dermatologists can make. But for a lot of it, it's just, it really is a spectrum. And it's interesting because if you look at the cosmetic treatments that we have, a lot of them came from the medical world. For example, Botox was used in medicine long before it was used in the world of cosmetic dermatology. And same can be said for this interesting injectables that we have. And the majority of products that we have come from medicine first, and then we find out they have a cosmetic use. So, you know, it's really a mix. Like most people that come to me with a medical concern they're usually there's a cosmetic concern as well because they don't they don't like the medical thing because of the way it makes them look or sometimes it's how they feel but it, it's very intertwined we wanted to know more about how the ontario medical association makes decisions about what procedures are covered under ohip are dermatologists involved in these decisions one of the ways that we define what's cosmetic and not cosmetic is often just based on what ohip covers and what ohip doesn't cover but there are dermatologists that are involved at the OMA level, so Ontario Medical Association, that you know do have some say in what is on the schedule of benefits and what is not. So it's always a balancing act, what you're looking at. You have this pot of money, and that's the amount of money that as a dermatologist you can spend for healthcare for your patients. And so you have to look at what what is going to be funded with those funds and what is not. Uh, you know, for example, skin tag removal is something that used to be funded years ago, or vein injections, but those are no longer funded by the government, so that those are considered, at least on OHIP. The word cosmetic is, I think, you know, you have to decide whether that's the right word or not, but I think that's where there's a, a clear delineation of this is covered by OHIP and this is not covered by OHIP. Many of the things that are not covered by OHIP would fall under more of a cosmetic concern. The delineation of what's defined as cosmetic versus medical under OHIP mostly corresponds to procedures like skin tag removal, as Dr. Carroll mentioned. With the exception of OHIP+, Plus, which covers individuals under 25 and over 65, prescriptions aren't covered in Ontario. Which means that if you're not covered under private insurance that you've purchased or your work or spouse provides, you're essentially paying out of pocket. But like many other specialists, Dr. Carroll often advocates for her patients who may not have the financial means to obtain treatment. We advocate for our patients all the time. So it could be, we will usually, if they have insurance, we will start 
by advocating you know with the insurance company so sometimes it's just as simple as filling out a form but we'll take a look at you know the, a good example is like psoriasis and eczema so we'll look at the like the impact that it's having on their life there's a quality of life assessment that we do we'll look at the severity of the disease and how much of their body it's covering and then we can look at other things is the disease for example say psoriasis also affecting their joints we can look at what medications have they tried in the past and what medications you know are not suitable for that particular patient and then perhaps advocate for one of the newer medications that way so we can advocate to their insurance company for some of the medications drug companies specifically will have something called compassionate release and so you can advocate to the company and say look i have a patient and they have psoriasis they have eczema they have hydratinitis superativa is another condition and the, a lot of those companies will actually release the drug at no charge or depending on you know the patient's means less charge to the patient so the patient can get treated and i've seen that go on you know for years where they'll be treated on a very expensive medication and the company will simply just give it to them and then if the patient doesn't have insurance and there's no compassionate release available then there's also government programs that you can work with like trillium that you can help get the patient some coverage you know through the government so there's usually a way and then we we're also a lot of us are involved in clinical trials so sometimes we can get patients in the clinical trials and that's the way to get them medication that's covered so it's more difficult than we thought to parse out what treatments are medical or cosmetic and dermatologists spend a lot of time advocating in cases where conditions are seriously affecting patients well-being but some procedures are pretty clear-cut Botox and fillers, for example, easily fall into the cosmetic camp. Since the wait times to see a dermatologist are often pretty long, we wondered how Canadian dermatologists are dividing their time. Interestingly, we actually have just finished a survey as the Canadian Dermatology Association of our members to find out exactly where people are spending their time and what type of practices people have. And it turns out, interestingly, in Canada that 85% of dermatologists still have a general dermatology clinic, so they see all comers. There are 5% of our dermatologists who are only cosmetic, which I was surprised that's much smaller than, than I assumed. And then there are a few very specialized types of dermatologists. For example, there's a subspecialty called Mohs surgery, which is a type of skin cancer surgery, and some people only do that, and then there's a small group of people that say only do hair transplants. But the majority of our members see it all. So they will see everything from babies to octogenarians. They see men and women. They say skin cancer. They see psoriasis and eczema. And then they're probably doing a little bit of filler Botox laser as well. And it really probably depends on sort of the demand that's coming their way from their community. And then also what they have an interest in. Because just like if someone's doing an English major, they're going to have an interest in a particular you know, era or a particular author. And it's similar in dermatology, you know, people find their niche or they, they're doing research in a certain area. So all those things like play into, you know, how the dermatologist is going to split up their day. And then the other thing is a lot of us as dermatologists are educators as well. So we're teaching at the university level, we're lecturing, um, you know, at conferences. So there's a large component of trying to educate the up and coming group because we know that one in, one in three dermatologists are planning to retire, I think, in the next five to ten years. Although we focused a lot on skin well-being and cleanliness, you'll be amazed to learn that dermatology is a huge field that encompasses so much more than just skin care. 
These include many diseases such as skin cancer, psoriasis, rosacea, vitiligo, hair loss, eczema, dermatitis, and chickenpox. And there are many different treatment options, including biopsy surgery, cryotherapy, dermabrasion, injections, hair restoration, and so much more. So it should come as no surprise that, just as with any other specialty, one of the backbones of improved care for patients is the dissemination of research knowledge into the clinic. Derm is highly interdisciplinary and covers many fields of science and medicine. This includes physiology, microbiology, endocrinology, rheumatology, histology, and several others. And as such, the Toronto community has a healthy group of dermatologist researchers who are hard at work in driving forward discoveries that impact the lives of patients. One of these groups is located at Sunnybrook Hospital and specializes in the epidemiology of skin diseases, hair conditions, as well as rare skin disorders, the treatment of burns and skin lesions, and even skin-related side effects from chemotherapy. They treat patients of all ages, including a focus on pediatric dermatology. Another major center is Women's College Hospital, which has clinics that are specialized in most surgery, wound care, melanoma, and pigmented lesions. Women's College Hospital also has a multicultural academic dermatology clinic for patients with non-Caucasian skin. Collectively, these two centers treat over 80,000 patients a year, and both place a huge emphasis on patient education. Furthermore, closely affiliated with these centers is the U of T Dermatology Residency Training Program that allows highly motivated medical students to gain the clinical and research skills they need to excel as dermatologists. Dermatology also has many ties to industry. This includes privately funded research, particularly around the development of drugs, cosmetics, and treatments. This makes it all the more important to take a critical lens when interpreting industry research findings. To put this in perspective, a 2016 study published in JAMA Derm has identified that dermatologists in North America receive millions of dollars each year for consulting, product endorsement, research collaborations, and speaking engagements. Another study found that although physicians disclose their ties as mandated by law, the majority chose not to report the exact amounts received. This finding highlights the potential for a conflict of interest that must be disclosed. But on the bright side, there is a trend towards increased transparency, which ensures that physicians continue to act in the best interest of their patients. This is all to say that research can come from many different sources and can be used to improve care, increase knowledge, and also to bring new innovations to the market. Now to answer the question you've all been waiting for. What did the dermatologist actually recommend to us? We asked Dr. Scott Nicky to unveil her secrets and walk us through her own skincare routine. Yeah, and I, I'm very forthcoming with what I do, which is not a lot. And, and you know, I think in the, in the book, I talk a little bit about aging and genetics. I mean, 60% of our skin, unfortunately or fortunately, is genetics as far as aging and looks. And then, you know, whether we smoke and how much sun we get is the vast majority. Product is, is a very small amount. I don't really wash myself very often. I never use soap. I only use cleanser, which uh, I don't have any financial, but I use CeraVe or Cetaphil. I only wash my bits, like underarms, groin, feet maybe. And if I have a workout or something, I just shower. I don't use soap again or cleanser again, maybe just under the arms. I wash my hair only twice a week because I use dry shampoo. And my kids, actually, it's a funny story. My, my son, my youngest son, when I was writing the book, he didn't tell me this, but he stopped using everything. He didn't use any soap, any cleanser, any shampoo. He told me this after about six months, and he was fi- absolutely fine. Absolutely. Of course, he washed his hands. So that's the extreme, and I interviewed a fellow, a couple people who hadn't done that. And I think 
if you understand the brick wall analogy, you need to use moisturizer and you need to use product because we're damaging it when we wash. Same with your hair. So if you wash less, you have less damage. People will write me on Facebook and email me and say, you know, my life's changed. I don't need to use any moisturizer because you're damaging it. As far as face care, I never wash my face. I use a mycelial cleanser, which is just, I put it on the pad and use that. So I never put water on my face anymore. I use a sunscreen in the morning that's tinted, that has titanium. So titanium is a physical block for pollution. It's also a sunscreen and you get some tint, so it's a makeup. At night, I use a bit of retinol and some vitamin C and that's it. If you ask most dermatologists, they all use sunscreen and retinol. And part of the reason there's other products is because of marketing, but also some people can't use retinol. And I talk about that in the book. So there's other categories like peptides and growth factors, which are, you know, sort of the newest kid on the block with the science is a bit lacking. But yeah, I don't think that you need to do a lot, but sunscreen is, is paramount, the most important. And what did Dr. Carroll have to say? Sunscreen? Sunscreen, sunscreen. No, just joking. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do really have, it's like, good that you you guys are completely unanimous on that. Everyone, sunscreen is the first thing yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. says. Yeah. 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 But I mean, the interesting thing about sunscreen is I will say that like we are all love our sunscreen, but I also think it's important for people to know that sunscreen is really your third line of defense. Like when you're talking about sun protection. So first is avoiding. So, you know, you don't want to put yourself out there in the middle of the day. You're better off, you know, seeking shade. The second tip is just covering yourself. So sun protective clothing and hat and then sunscreen. You know, we all say sunscreen, sunscreen, but really that's, you know, just part of the picture. But back to your question about products, I would say like my three non-negotiables are, um, and we're talking about for, I'm talking about your classic sort of patient who's looking at preventative aging. Right. So, if you, you know, it's different if someone has acne or someone has rosacea or someone has melasma. Right. But like the core product that we all believe in, I think the first is sunscreen. The second is something exfoliating. So tretinoin is a prescription product that is helpful for chemical exfoliation. It also increases collagen production. And I can spot from across the room someone who's been a very diligent tretinoin user. You can just tell by their skin. You know, like 20, you can say like you've been using a retinoid for 20 years. Like, How can you tell? Like I can just tell. And then there's baby versions of that. There's retinols. You can even, if you can't handle a ret, something in that tretinoin family, it's glycolic acid. So just something that's turning your skin over is helpful. And then antioxidants are really important as well because even with sun protection and sunscreen, sun, some of the ultraviolet damage is going to happen in your skin. So antioxidants do help mitigate some of those harmful rays that get in and some of the damage that they cause, particularly they cause free radicals. So the antioxidants do help to mop up some of those free radicals. And how are um, the antioxidants usually marketed as or what so are the products? Vitamin C is the classic one. So it's L-ascorbic acid and L stands for left. So they're, they're marketed as vitamin C products, but it's really important. I mean, the other thing I think that it's important for people to know is like there's a ton of marketing hype out there. So there's a lot of me too products that will say they have things and they just have enough to say it's in the bottle, but is it enough that's doing something? Not always. So, you know, for example, in the vitamin C's, we like a 10 to 20% range of vitamin C under 10. It's probably not doing anything over 20. It's probably irritating or it's not worth having anymore. So it's important to look on the backs of the bottles and look at the ingredient list and the percentages to make sure that, you know, you're getting enough of the active ingredient to make it 
worth the money and worth the time to apply it. And in terms of the the retinoids that you were talking about before, do people have to come and get prescription for those? Or is there something just like products that they can buy at Shoppers Drug Mart, for example, that are lighter versions of them perhaps or yeah. work just as well? Well, I mean, the gold standard is the prescription retinoid, but there are retinols that are available in drugstores. There's lots of different companies that make those. I'll sometimes suggest the patients that's a good place to start and then they can mm-hmm. kind of work through the different percentages. And if they do fine, they have no irritation, then I can give them a prescription as well. So it just depends on, on what they want. People want to go right for the big gun. Dr. Carroll talked about the importance of antioxidants. The reason why antioxidants are important is because they offset oxidative stress, one of the major chemical processes that contribute to, you guessed it, aging. Basically, we age because of oxidative stress. Every time you breathe, you're aging because oxygen causes superoxygen radicals, which damage us. And so we're aging solely every time we breathe. And so anything that decreases oxidative stress, the studies on nutra sort of supplements, you know, um, eating collagen or taking high doses of vitamin C, all of those are like there's some promise to them, but the biggest one actually, I just did a article on is on collagen. So collagen is our most common protein. It gives us structure and it decreases as we age. It breaks down. So if you eat collagen, the fish or sort of marine collagen, like the skin or the bones, there's been some actual double-blind randomized control studies that it can help decrease aging. It comes back to common sense again. Eat well, exercise, get your sleep, drink water. I mean, it's all stuff we already know. People that live in Bigger cities age more because of pollution. They've shown that in the skin. Several studies actually showing more brown spots in people that live in polluted areas. I don't know about the oxidative stress for that. Sunscreen is a cornerstone. So I talk about that study, that really interesting study in the book that Olay did with Procter & Gamble that looked at exceptional agers. It was actually insane because if you think, I mean, you're a researcher, they did genomics, full genomics on all of these people. It's like a lot of money. They basically took non-medical people and they had them rank, I, don't, I think it was 200, let's just say stay for ease of, um, who, what, what, how old they were. And anybody that was ranked at a younger age than they actually were, they then took those people, so they called them exceptional agers, and they looked at their full genomics and they tried to see if there was any pattern. And all the genetics that they sort of found that were different in these exceptional agers were about how the skin could protect themselves itself against UV radiation. So they had enzymes that could decrease the damage, you know, pyrimidine dimers of the DNA in the skin, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it comes down to, again, genetics. And in Asian and African-American skin, you age less because your skin is more able to protect itself against UV radiation. The long answer to that is sunscreen is the cornerstone of anti-aging treatment. Okay, that's all the skincare tips that we have for this episode. Remember, less is more and sunscreen, sunscreen, sunscreen. The episode team learned a lot from today's guests, and we hope you did too. Thank you to our wonderful guests, Dr. Sandy Scott-Nicky and Dr. Julia Carroll, for answering all of our burning skincare questions. 
If you're interested in learning more about them or skincare in general, we've compiled a list of resources in the episode description, including Dr. Scott Nicky's book, Beyond Soap, and CDA resources. Content development and hosting for this episode was done by Alex, Aaron, myself, and Melissa. Audio engineering was done by Max. And until next time, keep it hygienic, not clean. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. One of the major chemical processes that contribute to, you guessed it, dun, dun, dun. aging.